This is the first horror rock novel I've talked about on the show. I've never read any horror rock novels before yours. The idea of a haunted song was interesting to me. I mean, you, uh, in horror literature, you always have to, it seems like unless you're writing a slasher kind of thing, you need an ancient evil, right? You need something that's old, that has won't die or comes back or as a curse or something. So, you know, we've seen the haunted house. We've seen haunted apartments. Stephen King has haunted everything from cars to laundry, fold- <laughs> the dogs to laundry folding machines. <laughs> So, yeah, but a haunted song made sense to me because in music in general, but especially in rock music, there is an unnatural uh, number of people who die young. They pass away unexpectedly. The 27 27 Club. Club. To me, it was creepily easy to weave this fiction around that, you know, that uh, these artists throughout time have maybe dabbled with this haunted song. And that is what ultimately led to their demise. In terms of what can be facilitated in a magical sense, what can be f- facilitated in a metaphysical sense of, you know, having an intention for a desired outcome. Yes. Because I think that's what you're getting at mm-hmm. in this in this story that y- you're doing the show about is that there is either a quality, certain quality about a particular song that brings about a particular outcome. Or there is a maybe an intention in playing the song or something of that nature. There's that relationship between these two strands of pop culture, horror and rock, that makes perfect sense because after all, rock is the devil's music. Yeah, absolutely. This sort of content is questionable. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. is lit welcome to season two of rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels brought to you by pantheon podcast network make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts i'm your host christy alexander hallberg author of my own rock novel searching for jimmy page from livingston press find me on facebook at christy alexander hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Some songs demand sacrifice, Robbie Rera writes of the title song in his novel Hangman's Jam, a story that chronicles the rise of the band Alan Vent and the Strange Creations and the mysterious song that haunts and beguiles them. If you like your rock novels to come with a hearty dose of groupies, drug overdoses, sex tapes, and a side of murder, betrayal, and some freaky otherworldly creatures, you're in the right place. Speaking of mysterious and powerful songs, Zena Schreck joins me in the last segment of the podcast to talk about the power certain songs have in spiritual and magical practices. 
Zina is an artist, musician, Tibetan Buddhist yogini, as well as former high priestess of the Church of Satan, founded by her late father, Anton LaVey. More from Zina soon. But first, I'd like to welcome Robert Rera to the show. Robert Rera is a writer, editor, musician, and literary critic. His fiction, nonfiction, and essays have earned numerous awards. He lives in New Jersey with his wife, two kids, and a bunch of rescued dogs and cats. He blogs at RobertRera.com, tweets at Haiku Bob, and his work is available in both print and digital editions at all major online booksellers. He is the author of the Hangman's Jam series of novels and stories about a haunted song that opens a portal to a nightmarish dimension. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Rob. Thank you, Christy. Good to be here. So the band in the novel Hangman's Jam plays a lot of covers of all kinds of music, from The Clash to R.E.M. to the band to old blues songs, and even a tune or two of Patsy Cline's. Mm-hmm. And I know you're in a band called The Cruel Earth that you describe as a prog fusion pop band. That's true. So yes, so you have pretty eclectic taste in music. I can't wait to find out just how eclectic your taste is. Let's play <laughs> a set of five questions. Let's do it. What music video made the biggest impression on you? Well, I would say as a a child of the 80s, you have to include Michael Jackson's Thriller in there because it combined rock and horror, which are two of my favorite things as a kid and now still as an adult. Yeah, Michael Jackson's Thriller, I think, changed the game. It really put some production values into videos because a lot of the early videos of the 80s were pretty bad. And in, uh, in addition to that, I'd say probably Peter Gabriel's videos from that time, Sledgehammer, Big Time. They were a uh, very strange kind of claymation. They were very weird. So yeah, I'd say those two were probably the my most enjoyable videos of the time. Question number two, if you could see any band or solo artist living or dead in concert, who would it be? So living or dead, could I, could I go back to like a Mozart or something? Because I think that would be kind of cool. To go yeah, back sure. and see some uh, the the classical uh, composers, but in the rock genre, I'd have to lo- I would have loved to have seen Jimi Hendrix play. Something about him playing live, I think, would be just amazing to see. Is his fingers work the guitar? Maybe Elvis in his prime that might have been kind of cool. I would have loved to have seen the Beatles in their prime too. Although I don't know, I I think the Beatles they had a reputation as not being the greatest live band, but. I think uh, the atmosphere, I'm sure, of their shows was amazing, you know? God, yes. Picture this. Mm-hmm. You're in a bar, and you see a rock star sitting in a corner nursing a drink and reading your book, hmm. Hangman's Jam. Who is it, and what do you do? All right. I would say it is Todd Rundgren. And wow. Todd Rundgren, uh, who was in Utopia and had a pretty long solo career. I've been a big fan of his for years. Hopefully he's uh, reading the book and laughing. Hopefully he's uh, enjoying it, getting a kick out of it. And what would I do? I wouldn't want to bother him, I don't think. Maybe I'd, maybe I'd buy him another drink, send a drink his way, and be like, here, you're going to need this by the time you get to the end of this novel. <laughs> <laughs> you might even want to make it a, make it a double. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. So when I hear... This song called Nude by Radiohead. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Nude from Radiohead, to me, sounds like angels falling. Like angels falling from a height. Oh, wow. It's very ethereal. has a celestial sound to it. 
and it sounds like uh, something almost divine to me. But it's but there's a sadness to it, you know. It's like a there's a sadness. So I think it's angels falling from the heavens, maybe. I'm a Radiohead fan. I like their their songs are always sad and beautiful, you know? Mm-hmm. I like Strange. Radiohead too. What's on your playlist now? Now I'm kind of going back and listening to some stuff that I didn't appreciate in its heyday, like um, some Bruce Springsteen and some R.E.M. I kind of ignored these bands when they were in their height. Well, Bruce Springsteen, I don't know, mm. I guess. Either way, I was always kind of avoided his work. Lately, my son's been listening to a lot of it, and so uh, now I'm kind of, you know, appreciating it as as a songwriter. And some of the stuff that he did, REM especially too. Their stuff's really uh, very nice, beautifully written. This new guy, I got Matt Mason. I like him; he's pretty good songwriter. And what else is on my list? Oh, uh, new Opeth. It's kind of a heavy. Actually, the new Opeth is more of a classic rock kind of. It's got a lot of organ in it. Sounds like early Genesis to me. So yeah, that's what's on my playlist. Interesting. I've not heard of that last band. Yeah, they've been around for a little bit. They're Swedish. Okay, I'll check them out. Cool. Last question: What's your favorite rock novel? Oh well, I would have to say Searching for Jimmy Page because that <laughs> thing's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. There's just not enough uh, good rock novels, but <laughs> I got to tell you, Searching for Jimmy Page is an excellent rock novel. First, I like that you pick the song Four Sticks because it's kind of an odd choice in Zeppelin yeah. uh, repertoire, and it's uh, kind of got weird jarring rhythms to it, and it kind of sounds almost like a, a tribal chant of some sort, you know? Yeah. So it really works for that. And plus, uh, yeah, it was a great, uh, great novel. Great kind of a search for identity novel. Well, thank you. My goodness. I appreciate that. Ah, it was very good. What else is good? The Great Jones Street by Don yes, DeLillo. Don DeLillo. Don mm-hmm. DeLillo is a great writer. I wrote, uh, what was his one about Kennedy? Libra. It's about mm-hmm. the uh, Oswald and Kennedy assassination. That's good. My daughter's very into uh, Daisy Jones and the Six, which I haven't actually read myself, but I like the way they're marketing it as a book and music to accompany it. I haven't really seen that before, but I, uh, that's an idea that I've I've had myself and I have some kind of book projects with music that I've written to accompany them. I haven't quite figured out how to... It, feel, it feels like it would be easy enough with an ebook format to kind of like have music play while you are reading, you know? But I haven't quite figured out how to get that going yet. But uh, I like the, the two art forms together like that. So... Mm-hmm. Hats off to Daisy Jones. Peter McDade, I had him on the show an episode or so ago, and he has a novel called The Weight of Sound, and he actually did do a soundtrack that goes with it that's really good. So this seems to be an idea that's beginning to catch on, evidently. Wow. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back with Rob Herrera. Make sure you stick around for the last segment of the podcast to hear Zena Schreck talk about the use of music in spiritual and magical practices. Back in a moment. Back in a moment. 
This is Rob Herrera, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back with Rob Herrera, author of the Hangman's Jam series of novels and stories about a haunted song that opens a portal to a nightmarish dimension. In this episode, we're focusing on the first novel in that series, the eponymously titled Hangman's Jam. So we are now in the second season of Rock is Lit, and I've featured quite a few rock novels so far, but this is the first horror rock novel I've talked about on the show and honestly i I've never read any horror rock novels before yours unless you consider Stephen King's work kind of honorary rock novels. But I hadn't even considered that there was such a thing. So tell me what I've been missing. Give me a crash course in this subgenre. <laughs> okay. Again, it, to me, it's an underrepresented subgenre because rock and horror have always had this link where um, they always kind of rock music, especially heavy metal rock, uses that imagery of the horror, uh, the skulls, the coffins, the crosses. So, yeah, there's always been this link between horror and rock music, maybe because it's the outsiders or some kind of rebel philosophy. As far as rock and literature books, you'd have to go back to the 80s for John Skip and Craig Spector. They wrote a book called The Bridge, but a book called The Kill Riff is probably one of the first kind of rock and roll horror novels I ever read. John Skip and Craig Spector. They're awesome. Interesting. Yeah, they were a writing combo. They had some a couple of pretty popular horror books in the in the eighties, and then uh, Joe Hill's Heart Shaped Box is probably one of the more popular, I would say, rock and roll horror novels about a rock star who I think buys a haunted suit from another rock star, and for some reason it arrives in a heart shaped box, which I don't, <laughs> which other than the Nirvana <laughs> lyric. I, I can only uh -huh. imagine it's like some kind of a Valentine's Day box or something. But uh, anyway, he gets this haunted suit and hijinks ensue. Now, <laughs> I think um, also Anne Rice dabbled in a little bit of rock and roll stuff with uh, Lestat. I think in Queen of the Damned, I think Lestat was a rock star or something in that book. 
or oh, a, okay. a performer of some sort. And another vampire rock star was in this book called Vampire Junction by S.P. Somtow. I don't know what happened to S.P. Somtow. He wrote in another, in a couple of pretty good books in the 80s, uh, horror books. And that was one of them that I just remember. It wasn't probably my favorite novel, but I know it had uh, rock and roll vampires in it. The vampire thing is, is pretty much pervasive in this. Subject. Yeah, vampires can seem to get away with a lot. They're cool and they're suave. Unless they look like uh, Nosferatu, they can get away with a lot. Usually they're pretty handsome. They look like Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt or something. As opposed to Nosferatu looking like Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, as far as rock and horror goes in film, you, you get a lot more crossover there. Return of the Living Dead had a lot of like a punk, punk rock soundtrack. You get even things like Kiss Meets Phantom of the Park, which was like the, oh rock, my God. <laughs> the rock group Kiss, and they were kind of fighting. I don't even know what the plot was, but they were fighting some kind of demon in an amusement park, I think, or something. I just remember they were very large. Yes. <laughs> yes. And even Kiss itself and Guar, bands like this. I mean, that's really, to me, rock and horror, Alice Cooper. They kind of yeah. really incorporated a lot of that stuff together. Welcome to my breakdown. I hope I didn't just the way we are when we come down. We sweat on a side note, maybe it's not so side note-ish, but I'm working on a biography of a guy named John Becker, who was my neighbor for a bunch of years. But in the 60s, he played drums in a band called the Del Airs. And the Del Airs were featured in this movie called The Horror of Party Beach. And uh, this came out in 64, I think it was. And it was a terrible movie. One of the worst. It was a, I think it was a parody of a lot of those beach blanket bingo and, and those kind of Frankie and Annette beach movies. But it was terrible for a number of reasons. One is it was filmed on the East Coast, so it didn't have that beautiful California beaches. It was filmed in black and white, so it didn't have any of the kind of splash of color that these beach movies usually had and the monster was just terrible it was uh it was like these weird paper mache head with uh like a bunch of hot dogs in its mouth it was it was a terrible <laughs> a terrible monster anyway the del airs were the band in this movie so they um you know had their 15 minutes of fame in this terrible movie one of the songs though that they played was called zombie stomp and i'm convinced in my own twisted way that the zombie stomp then influenced Romero four years down the line when he made the Night of the Living Dead, which was very not rock and roll because it had almost no music in it, just eerie kind of soundtrack. I think almost the Romero maybe saw this movie and wanted to make the opposite of it, like a, or an actual good uh, horror movie as opposed to the horror of Party Beach. But again, you get that rock and roll and horror crossover. Uh, it happened, seemed to happen a lot more in film than in, in literature, but I'm trying to fix that, Christy. Yes, and you're doing a good job. <laughs> I'm trying. You know, I agree with you. I mean, there's that relationship between these two strands of pop culture, horror and rock, that makes perfect sense because, after all, rock is the devil's music. Yeah, absolutely. 
And then goes back to Robert Johnson in that air quotes deal he made with the devil at the crossroads. And then mm-hmm. that goes on to Led Zeppelin and absolutely, you know, that, that legend surrounding them about three of the four members selling their souls to the devil yes. for fame and fortune. And that goes back to Dr. Faustus. So it just, right. it, it makes perfect sense that this would be a thing. And I'm mm-hmm. kind of feel silly that I didn't know about it. Well, to me, and I, this is something I tried to do in, in Hangman's Jam a little bit. You could see there's like a uh, a Lovecraftian kind of horror thing in there. The fact their manager is named Howard Phillips, which is H.P. Lovecraft's uh, name. But to me, the the mythos of Lovecraft with all his different gods and the hierarchy of of otherworldly beings that Lovecraft created, to me, the mythology of rock and roll is just as outlandish and frightening in its own way. And I tried to incorporate some of those like rock, I don't want to say myths because I guess they're based in fact. Like, for instance, there's a story when Pink Floyd was recording uh, Wish You Were Here that they had a visitor to the studio one day and they realized uh, the guy was there for a while before they realized that it was Sid Barrett, their former bandmate. And they were all just kind of shocked and saddened to see what he had become, you know? And I so I kind of have a scene similar to that in Hangman's Jam where uh, an ex-bandmate returns and they don't really recognize him. Yes, you do. After a time. There's also, I, I think I make mention of an album by the Mars Volta. The Mars Volta is an interesting band. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They, they're kind of a, no. they're, they're kind of a metal band, but they combine a lot of like Latin beats. Just very strange prog rock kind of thing. But they supposedly were recording an album called Bedlam and Goliath. And they claim they summoned some kind of poltergeist during the recording and they were missing tracks and the, there was all kinds of weird happenings in the studio. Things were going missing and people were getting hurt and strange things. So, you know, who knows? The, it's the, there's all this, how should I put it? There's always rock and roll stories. Usually they're pretty profane. And there's a few of those with <laughs> Led Zeppelin too. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, there's also, I mean, even with Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page, his interest in Aleister Crowley, that kind of black magic kind of summoning of something. In the in the Hangman's Jam, the band isn't really, uh, I guess what you find out is that they are summoning, I call them shadow people. They're kind of like these swarm of bees or something. But those really aren't what the problem is the problem is those are like the harbingers of what the real beasts are in the other world the idea of a haunted song was interesting to me i mean uh, in horror literature you always have to it seems like unless you're writing a slasher kind of thing you need an ancient evil right you need something that's old that has won't die or comes back or is a curse or something so you know, we've seen the haunted house. We've seen haunted apartments. Stephen King has haunted everything from cars to laundry folding, <laughs> the dogs to laundry folding <laughs> machines. So yeah, but a haunted song made sense to me because in music in general, but especially in rock music, there is an unnatural uh, number of people who die young. They pass away unexpectedly. Yes, the the Twenty Seven Club. Club. To me, it was creepily easy to weave this fiction around that you know that uh, these artists throughout time have maybe dabbled with this haunted song and that is what ultimately led to their demise it goes through from the beginning of rock and roll to unfortunately now it's not you know there's still artists who pass away young and you could always say oh hangman jam 
takes another one. Because if you think about it, uh, I make this reference in the book, which is if you think of all the artists who have died before their time, and then compare that to all the artists that you have never heard of who have toiled in obscurity their whole lives, and how many of those passed away young and you never even heard of them, now you start to get a shape that this is something that silently kind of picks away at the artist industry in a way. It's uh, it's something that feeds over the years on artists. So anyway, yeah, it's a fiction, but to me it kind of almost made a, a little sense because it does seem like some, um, I can't say artists are cursed, but something about maybe the lifestyle or whatever it is, it certainly draws more than its share of mortality, uh, you know, accidents and terrible ends. Right, right. So... Let's talk more about the idea of the haunted song, because I had Jeff Jackson on the very first episode mm-hmm. of Rock is Lit. He wrote a novel called Destroy All Monsters, the last mm-hmm. rock novel, in which one of the characters says of the song, Pledging My Love by Johnny Ace. Now, this mm-hmm. is a real artist and a real song. Here's the quote from the book. People say he's the ghost that haunts rock and roll. They claim that song is cursed and bad things happen to people who perform it. FYI, Johnny Ace was an R&B singer and musician who had some hits Mm. in the 50s, and he shot and killed himself on Christmas Day in 1954, after which his song Pledging My Love went to the top of the charts because, you know, there's nothing like an artist dying to get their song to the top of the charts. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, but in your novel, Hangman's Jam, the haunted song is called by several different names, the last being Hangman's Jam. What's the history of that song? Which is fiction, by the way. It's not a real song. I'll work backwards from it. It kind of worked its way through different musicians. You know, musicians who all maybe died before their time. I had Frank Zappa have a hand on it. had Dwayne Allman worked on it. But then to me, it goes back to like the jazz era and the blues. Of course, a lot of rock and roll is rooted in the Delta blues music. And like you mentioned, there's Robert Johnson and the deal with the devil. And there's a superstition involved with that kind of music i think oh yeah there's a spirituality to it because it comes probably from that you know maybe a slave culture of spirituals and church Mm -hmm. gospel kind of music but it's been i don't want to say bastardized but it's been the blues are kind of like took that and made it the everyman language rather than this isn't something lofty for church this is something that we can we can sing about uh, in the bars at night or, uh, you know, in the fields or whatever we're doing. So I think there is kind of a spiritual, supernatural sense to the old blues music. But I have this song, I have the Hangman's Jam melody going back to classical musicians. I think it's the reason why uh, Beethoven went deaf. He lost his hearing because of it. He actually poked his eardrums out because he couldn't try to get rid of it. Mozart, of course, but even back further to like when music started, I think really music started probably we were trying to imitate the sounds of animals. We got flutes to try to mimic the birds and the 
drums were always just like pounding on things that sounded like rain or sounded like thunder. So yeah, this song to me goes back to the roots of music when people were still drilling little holes in bones to make flutes. That's an interesting prospect. I mean, what does that say about why we need music or what that means in our lives? Does it encapsulate the pain of Hmm. living and, and the mystery of living? You know what? It certainly puts voice to to our deepest feelings. And to me, it's a, to me, music is a language unto itself that is, you know, transcends uh, cultures and any kind of verbal or written language. It's kind of a, almost a universal language. And I was thinking about this when I was, when I was working on this biography, like where does music come from? Man didn't really invent it. We just kind of tamed it or we just kind of Discover, like I said, we discovered it, I think, in nature, as far as hearing rhythmic patterns and mu- and melodies, and then we kind of put an order to it. Well, like, okay, these eight notes are all kind of sound good together, so that's that scale, and then we'll put the other notes together, and then we'll flat the third and see what that sounds like. So there was a lot of math, you know, like man-made math that we kind of put around this natural structure. Uh, music exists uh, out here somewhere and all we can do is kind of filter it or try to like harness it in some way. But to me, it's almost like a, a, an, an ancient magic in that you're making something out of nothing. Yes. It seems like you're making something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Like we're just sitting here and then I can sing a note la, and you could do a lower harmony and suddenly we're making music together and it's something more than the sum of its parts, you know, it's kind of cool. So yeah, I think musicians in a way look like, you know, to a layman, maybe they might look like a, a magic, a magician because they can kind of create this song out of thin air seemingly. Okay. Let's, let's stay with that a second. The idea of, of music and magic going together because mm. Bobby, the narrator and the bass player in the band in the book he sees these ominous shadow figures, like you were saying, he sees these ominous shadow figures whenever the band plays the song, Hey Mang's Jam, and he knows he's playing with fire mm. by playing that song, but he can't stop. Right. So here's a quote from Bobby about this. All I had to do was stop playing and it would all go away. All I had to do to save myself, to save the woman I love, to save the world was stop what I was doing. But the groove, the groove, the groove was so good like a prolonged orgasm or a satisfying bowel movement or a dive into a cold lake, holding your breath underwater until your lungs about burst, then breaking the surface and sucking in air, sucking in a bong hit or that first cigarette of the day or the last one at night, the comfort of your bed. It's as soft as your pillow. That song for Bobby is like a spell Very much that so. takes hold of him which is what addiction does too. There you go. Now, I think, yeah, it's very much a novel about addiction, which also is a, a sad mm-hmm. byproduct of, well, now, how can I put it? Not a byproduct, but a common, what do you call it, companion on the road of rock and roll. Uh, yeah. You see a lot of people getting involved in drugs and getting losing themselves to drugs and alcohol. Hangman's Jam is, it's the best drug for Bobby, but the worst one that's going to kill him. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely a novel about addiction and all you have to do is quit, you know, and it's the hardest thing. I know I, I struggle with cigarettes to this day and it's and they're the worst of the worst, but it seems so easy, but you know, like all you have to do is not do something, you know, 
Anybody who's ever had the monkey of any sort on their back knows it's not that easy. Oh, yeah. Whether you're on a diet (laughs) or whatever it is. You know what I mean? It's always just stop doing something that's bad for you. It's interesting that you said all that because I was going to ask, were you thinking of this song as a metaphor for addiction when you wrote the novel? And it sounds like you kind of were. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. It's a metaphor for addiction. And it also works as that ancient evil that like won't go away. You know, that if it won't find a home in you, it'll find someone else to give it what it needs, you know? So it's definitely a metaphor for addiction. I would say, you know, if you want to get psycho analytic about it this novel would be more like my um adolescent rock fantasies everybody has a fantasy that's that's why there's shows like the voice and america's got talent everybody wants to be a rock star it seems so cool it's not even work it's playing you're playing for people and that you're entertaining millions and you feel godlike in a way and that in itself is addicting that feeling of that well why do you think we're all writing about <laughs> rock stars, rock stars. And, you know we all wanted yeah. to be one of the people writing rock so novels. everybody's yeah hangman's jam was kind of the first novel that i finished and felt this is good enough to publish maybe there were some things that i could have done better either way i think i tried to correct some of the things that i feel i didn't do right in hangman's jam with the next two novels in the series well, tell me the origin of this whole series. Where, how did this begin? And how many stories and books are there? Are there just the three books? Those are the three novels, right? But I actually wrote another book called Songs in the Key of Madness. And that has, I'm not sure how many stories are in there, maybe 12 or 13. And they're all Hangman's Jam in different settings. Okay. So the band, Alan Vint and the Strange Creations, what? How would you classify them? What kind of music would you say that they play? Because I know they do a lot of covers, but their original, their original songs, their original sound uh-huh. is is definitely different than a lot of the songs that a lot of the covers that they play. Yeah, yeah. So if I, you're if you're you're working in a music store and you got to mm-hmm. stock their records, where are you going to put them? They would go in probably the uh, metal, heavy metal somewhere, probably, but probably like a pop metal or like a some kind of accessible heavy rock, you know, they wouldn't be like those screamy death guys. Cause those kind of turn people off and they seem to be pretty popular Alan Vance. So I think they have a good sense of melody. They're an excellent bar band. So they have a really good ear for music. And they, they like you said, they know a lot of covers. They thought they knew a lot of covers. Then they, then they get this guy, Smoke Johnson in the band who is an old blues player and he seems to know every song, or he can at least fake his way through almost anything. That expands their repertoire even more. So there's, they're good listeners, but I think their music style would be pretty heavy, almost like, I'd like to say Nine Inch Nails, but that's probably dates me if I say, you know, 
I don't know who the heavy guys are these days. Maybe, you know, Slipknot or something. Although I'm, I'm not even. Uh, a, no, 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 no. All right. Let's no. back away from that then. No, Foo no. Fighters, maybe. I don't know. That's better than Slipknot. Better. Yes. I think Foo Fighters would make sense because they're heavy, but they got a good sense of melody, you know? I thought of the group as more goth because okay. they talked a lot about as they progressed the themes mm-hmm. getting darker, talking about Armageddon, right. talking about all of these really dark things. And mm-hmm. I could kind of see them more in that category than yeah. real heavy metal. I could see that. And I also think, again, when you look at the story, Hangman's Jam is told from Bobby's perspective. And I think Bobby actually is in denial about a lot of the things that are happening in his band. I think he sees that the band members are getting into some stuff both drug wise and black magic wise yeah. that is very dangerous. And he's kind of like just I don't know. Maybe silence is his sin here. You know, he he doesn't uh, act man when he should, perhaps. Acts in bad ways just to just to drive people away. All right. Well you mentioned black magic. The song mm-hmm. literally does open up a portal to another dimension. And that kind of mm-hmm. smacks of the occult. Right. And I think Aleister Crowley's mentioned once, but he doesn't play a role in the story. But that I was thinking in terms of the occult. And then his name popped up and I'm like, oh, yeah. But more than anything, and you've already mentioned this, there's that heavy H.P. Lovecraft undercurrent in the book. Okay, now right. I am not that familiar with H.P. Lovecraft's work. So I'm kind of out of my league here. Give me a little okay. background on him and how he figures into the book. All right, so H.P. wrote in the 1920s, maybe 1910. In today's society, he's he's viewed as very racist because mm-hmm. he was a racist guy. If he can get past that, he created the idea of cosmic horror, which is the idea that there's something either from deep outer space or from deep in the our own Earth that is, again, this ancient evil that is... Although not really evil, I think what's interesting about his work is that it's indifferent. It's almost like humanity is just like some kind of insect in the way of its ultimate plan, and it doesn't really care whether humanity lives or dies or go whatever. So yeah, he would introduce these themes. If you're into his writing, it's very uh, it's a little melodramatic, and uh, he uses a lot of funky verbiage that he doesn't need to use. It's not perfect writing, but it's interesting. He he introduced a lot of these cosmic horror concepts. Anything with tentacles on it uh, <laughs> is is his Lovecraftian. I think he had a fear of deep sea creatures or something, maybe uh, because yeah, they always kind of had these kind of fish people were part of his horror. Uh, HP introduced a lot of these uh, otherworldly concepts, like that you'd see in say the movie Alien. You know, like the horror from the void, like far away. Yeah, yeah. He wrote an interesting story once called The Music of Eric Zahn. That shows up in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of worked that in there. 
it's a fiction piece, but in the story, this student is living below a violin player, a viola player. And every night, this guy would play this crazy, strange music, right? And so he eventually goes up to the guy's room, and the window of the guy's apartment has disappeared, and it's now it's just like this doorway into a void of nothingness. Mm. And there's like shapes in there, kind of in the void. So to me, it was like, well, there he was. Uh, HP was writing about uh, Hangman's Jam way before I even thought of it or was even born. Well, there you go. He had you on the brain. Yeah. So if you could find these pieces, like that was actually, a I had actually written Hangman's Jam. And then I went back and found this music, Eric Zahn, and kind of worked it back into the story there. No so. kidding. I figured, yeah. oh, I thought, you know, well, he's a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. He's kind of <laughs> no. working that into, but that's amazing that you already wrote the book and then discovered the story. Yep. That's, that's, that is true. Interesting. Let's go back to that song. I'm still, I'm still fascinated with this song. Like I said, there's that sense of the occult, the mysticism in the story. So I'm going to throw some terms at you from okay. the novel. And if you could give them context, that would be good. Okay. Here's the first one. The Age of Man. That comes up. Somebody says when, when the song is trying to bring about the end of the Age of Man and the start of something else. What is that rooted in? What does that mean? It's kind of loved crafty in, in that we're in the age of man, but before that and after us, there will be something. Well, before that, there, were, there was obviously obvious to me, there was dinosaurs and there was that kind of stuff. But there's the end of the age of man and the beginning of the age of the ancient ones, the old ones, the uh, elder gods, however you want to put it. When I read that, I was flashing on Kenneth Anger's films. And, and some of those films like um, Lucifer Rising, Scorpio, well, not, not so much Scorpio Rising, but Lucifer Rising and Invocation of My Demon Brother. And he seemed to be interested in that sort of thing, which has its roots in Crowley. Yes, yes, definitely. Here's another one. The hypnagogic state. That's like when you are in between, and we've all felt it. We just didn't know what to call it. But it's in between that sleeping and wakefulness when you're kind of like half dreaming, half awake, kind of like either just drifting off or just waking up from sleep. The hypnagogic state. That's what Smoke says is going on with the song when they play it. Yeah, that's what he's claiming is happening is that, oh, yeah, you're just kind of going. It's almost like a trance, you know, like trance music. And I think mm -hmm. if you look at other cultural musical things, different people use music as a trance kind of for even spiritual religious ceremonies or that kind of thing. But I don't know. If, I don't know if Smoke's telling the truth there. I think Smoke maybe knows that it's it's a real doorway that's opening and not just an imagination. But either way, he uses a big word, a hypnagogic state. He does. <laughs> he does. Yeah. And I agree with you. And we don't know how much to believe of what Smoke says. He says a lot of stuff. I mean, he, he's met Elvis. He's met the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. He's and met on everybody. and on and on. Yeah, he's met everybody. Okay, here's another one. The Necronomicon. The Necronomicon is um, a book 
from the Lovecraft mythos. Lovecraft claimed that the Necronomicon, and I'm going to get this probably wrong. I think it was the mad, a mad Arab who uh, had a name, Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, but the mad Arab wrote the Necronomicon, which was this book of the dead full of spells and uh, mysticism to open up these other doorways. Pretty much it was just a work of fiction. I think it was written by, I'm not sure who wrote it actually, but you know, it was published by like Ballantine Press in the 80s. So <laughs> I don't know how much of a mystic book of the dead it really was. Yeah, it's a part of the Lovecraft mythos. One aspect of the novel I found so interesting has to deal with all the details you include about playing gigs, being in a recording studio, touring, signing record contracts, dealing with music execs, etc. And I thought this guy is either in a band or has done a hell of a lot of research. But now I know that you are in a band. Tell me about The Cruel Earth and how your experience in that band informed the writing of Hangman's Jam. I'll say this. Before I was in uh, The Cruel Earth, me and my friend uh, Mark, who was I've known since I was a kid, he's a fellow musician. We were in a band called The Groovy Coconut Band back in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> and The Groovy Coconut Band was a lot like Dick and the Sticks, which where we played a lot of bars and played a lot of covers. You know, it was a fun situation. Okay, I have to insert here. Dick and the Sticks was the original name yes. for the band yes. in the book. Yep. Okay, carry on. So, yes, when they were a cover band, uh, they were Dick and the Sticks. And that's a lot like the Groovy Coconut Band. We did a lot of covers. Once you start wanting to write your own original music, it's a whole new ball game. Nobody really wants to hear original music. So, you got to play uh, smaller clubs at smaller shows, like maybe a, a 20 minute set here or 20 minute set there. Or you play covers and try to work your original in, you know, in the middle of the set somewhere. But yeah, it was fun. I never got to the point where Bobby got to where he was signing record contracts and touring the world. One of the things that I mentioned is that a band is like a four-way marriage or a three-way marriage or yes. however many people are in it. That I have experienced where there's a lot of, everybody's got their own feelings and that they're bringing to it. And inevitably, there's some person who feels that they're giving more and some person who feels like you're not giving enough or there's some kind of relationship problem with it. Usually not music. It's usually something else. I tried to get some of that in there. The other thing I try to get in there is that there's a lot of ugly baggage with uh, being in a band that has nothing to do with music. But when you actually are playing music, it's an amazing feeling that's like tr almost transcendent feeling and that kind of makes all makes all the other stuff makes it worthwhile putting up with all the other aggravating stuff you know the uh the playing of the music i love this note in the youtube description of your song titanium night tears by the cruel earth okay here's here's the note perfect music for backyard burials family reunions molting target practice business casual sex advanced chemistry macrame so the next time i have a backyard burial i'm blasting that ah, there you go perfect it's perfect music for that yeah or business casual sex whatever that means <laughs> good to Good to see. 
the Cruel Earth is the remnants of the Groovy Coconut Band. It's me and my friend Mark. And we are kind of creating just strange music that we enjoy, obviously with a little tongue-in-cheek sense of humor to it. The project there for Titanium Night Terrors, we did a musical soundtrack to the periodic table of elements. So basically all of the families, every element has its own song now because we finished it. Yeah, that was in the Titanium group of the Titanium family. And I forget if there were four or five different uh, elements in there. And we'd write a song for each one. Some songs were pop songs. Some were just weird little instrumentals. Now everything's got a little song. So now this year, we may start putting together some combo albums, like, say, uh, the best of the carbon-based things. And we could just do carbon with all these other little linking molecules. Anyway, it was an odd project. Weird with a sense of humor, which I think is kind of like a little bit of our writing. A little bit of the Hangman's Jam is has a weird sense of humor to it. Well, there's this whole section in Hangman's Jam where, and it's pretty early on, they're talking about the difference between blues and jazz. And that's hilarious. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) good. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, the jazz is the smart cousin who goes to college and and learns how to do everything, has has a name for everything. Like hypnagogic, that would be something the jazz cousin would, (laughs) would know. Whereas the blues cousin would just say, oh, yeah, that's like the sleep state, you know, or when you're just waking up. Right. The blues cousin go, works. The blues cousin goes to gets a job in a factory, you know. the. So, yeah, the blues is kind of a, you know, it's down and dirty. It's life. Yeah. So I respect that. And I respect that that's where the roots of rock and roll are, you know, in the in the blues. Absolutely. If I may diverge one more time, I have a son with autism. So I've written some books about that, Autism Dad. I was a newspaper columnist for 20 years, so I had a bunch of writings about that, about my son's autism. So I've written some books about that, and now my son and I are working on putting guitars together. So we're, I'm trying wow. to, yeah, I'm trying to teach him how to do a little bit of guitar repair, you know, how to put the strings on, you know, basic stuff. So I'm hoping it's all going to kind of come together, the autism, the guitars, the music, the writing. So we'll see. As I get older, it all starts to converge on the top, you know, so. Okay, so I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. Okay. So you can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw at you. You ready? Okay. Freaky songs, in keeping with your novel. Yeah. Okay, freaky songs. Welcome to My Nightmare by Alice Cooper. Mr. Crowley by Ozzy Osbourne or Hellhound on My Trail by Robert Johnson. Ooh, I can only pick one of those. Well, I got to go with Mr. Crowley then, because I'm a, uh, again, I come from the metal era and uh, I love Randy Rhodes who's playing on that song. His guitar playing is okay. excellent. So yeah, that's a good one. Mr. Crowley, can I ride your white horse? Mm-hmm. Goth bands. Okay. The Cure. Right. The Damned or Bajas. I'm going to go Cure, believe it or not, even though they're probably the most accessible and poppy. Yeah, just like heaven is very just poppy. like yeah. Friday and I'm in love. I, my wife loves yes. the cure too. So, and yes. that they remind me of her. So, I would pick the cure. Okay, music formats: cassette tapes, CDs, or vinyl. Mm. I'm not a uh, I'm not a purist. Uh, I should say vinyl, but I'm just going to go CDs because I think they were like to me they were the easiest format to deal with. And uh, okay. yeah, although I love those vinyl covers, those album covers were so cool. Yeah, the covers and oh, the liner yeah. notes and all that. Yeah, I kind of, and maybe I might want to change my answer back to vinyl, <laughs> just for the <laughs> no, artwork. No, 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 you'd like <laughs> to. 
Okay. Okay. Song performance style, live, recorded slash studio version, or music video? Uh, I got to go live. Like I said, I think live music is where the heart of it is. You know, that's that's real music if you can create right. it out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's the last one. And think really hard about this. Uh-oh. This is important. Don't hurt me. Guitarist. Jimmy Page? Jimmy Page or Jimmy Page? I'm going to have to go Jimmy Page on this one. You got to love Jimmy Page. You can't go wrong with him. My but, man. Again, he knows how to have mystique, you know? That, he does. You know? Yes. So, yeah. He had the whole package. <laughs> he did. And he, he was another guy who, um, again, I would love Jimmy Page. Uh, growing up, listening to his music, his skills were really in the studio. He, he had an ear for creating things that sounded beautiful in the studio mm-hmm. and then live. Sometimes it was there. Sometimes it wasn't there, but he still looked he cool. He could be sloppy, He's, but he played from the heart. He played from the heart and he looked cool with those cool dragon outfits and shit. Damn straight. <laughs> he was awesome. What have you got going on now? You want to tell listeners about, I can't say I'm not going to write any more rock and roll horror because I love it. I'm sure I will write some more right now. I wrote two other books about a golem. A golem is from um, Jewish folklore. It's basically a man made of clay that comes to life. Maybe they call it a golem. I think Either so. Either way, uh, golem, golem, Frankenstein, <laughs> mud man. I've written these uh, two books, The Mud Man and The Mud Woman. They're both about golem golems. Okay. They're horror-based, science fiction, I guess you'd call it, social science fiction. Anyway, check those out. They're pretty cool. And the Autism Dad books, which I wrote about my son. And what else? Again, I'm writing on this. I'm working on a biography of the drummer for the Del Airs, which hopefully will be out next year sometime. Hopefully that'll be cool. All right. Thanks so much for being on the show, All right, Rob. cool. I'm glad it worked out. Thank you yes. for being patient with me. Back at you. <laughs> cool. Check out Rob's blog at robberrera.com. Find him on Twitter at Haiku Bob. Rob's work is available in both print and digital editions at all major online booksellers. We'll take one last short break, then Zena Shrek joins me to talk about the use of music in spiritual and magical practices. Back in a moment. This is Zena Shrek, and you are listening to Rock is Lit. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I am very excited to welcome my friend Zena Shrek to Rock is Lit. Zena Shrek, formerly LeVay, was raised within the Church of Satan, 
which came to international prominence early in life as the organization's high priestess and first public spokesperson, defending the church in the 1980s during the infamous media-fueled U.S. satanic panic. She resigned her position in 1990, severed ties with her father, Anton LaVey, and renounced Satanism and Western occultism to pursue her own religious path, which led to her becoming a practitioner and lineage holder of Tibetan Tantric Buddhism. Zena is also an interdisciplinary visual and musical artist based in Berlin, Germany. Thank you so much for being here, Zena. Oh, well, thank you so much, Christy, for inviting me again. It's very nice to be back. Listeners, if you're thinking you've heard Zena on the podcast before, as she just said, she's coming back. She was a guest on Season 1, Episode 6, featuring Zachary Lazar's novel, Sway. So as you know, the focus of this episode is Rob Herrera's horror rock novel, Hangman's Jam, a story that chronicles the rise of the band Alan Vent and the Strange Creations, and the mysterious song called Hangman's Jam that haunts them. What the song really does when the band performs it is put listeners in a trance-like state, and in some cases a frenzied state and open up a sort of portal to another dimension. In fact, the song is supposed to help bring about the end of the age of man and the start of something else. So there are a lot of H.P. Lovecraft and occult undercurrents in the book. I've always been interested in the use of music, sound in general, in spiritual and magical practices. And Zena, I know you have a lot of experience with this sort of thing, so I didn't have to think twice about whom I was going to ask to be part of this episode Between 1988 and 1993, you were composer, vocalist, musician, and graphic designer for the Sonic Magical Musical Project Radio Werewolf. Your art has always and continues to stem from your experience within magical, pagan, shamanistic, and tantric Buddhist traditions. You've said there has always been an inseparable unity between my spiritual practices and my art. Do you remember when you first became aware of the power music and sound could have in spiritual and magical practices? Well, yes, I think probably for as far back as I can remember, because first of all, it's important to go back in time and realize that in my earliest formative years, my father, before he was high priest of the Church of Satan, uh, before he became notorious in that capacity, he was, in fact, a professional musician. He dabbled in other art forms, but Music was his strongest passion, and I've always firmly believed that he would have been happiest continuing on with his music in some capacity or other. So it's important to remember that. In fact, on my birth certificate, my father is listed as profession. His profession is musician. In my formative years, my very earliest memories are of my father playing music and use very versatile number of different instruments. You know, that's when I knew him to be happiest, actually. Mm. His whole mood, his disposition, his character, he was always happiest when he was playing music. So um, music is a very emotional, you know, a very emotive art form, and as as most uh, art forms have the ability to trigger different emotions in different parts of the psyche and mind and brain. But in particular, you know, what I was exposed to early in life from my father, I should say, were the kinds of music that he believed had certain qualities or powers to be very stirring emotionally. That can be a very subjective thing, however. And for me, I did have, whether it was innate, inborn, or just 
culturally picked up from my environment, but I think it tends to be more innate, is my musical tastes were in agreement with my father's. So there was no conflict there. The music that he played was the type of music that that I responded to even as a toddler, as a very young baby or early, early childhood. So I think that's an innate thing. You could argue whether that's part of genetics. You know, you're born to a certain family who has a certain disposition or likes and, and whatever, likes and dislikes. That's an arguable thing. But because music is such a highly subjective art form, well, you could say that about all art forms, but in particular, the way sound and voice affect the human psyche is very subjective. Yeah. So that depends on many various factors, such as cultural, magical, religious, metaphysical, general spirituality, or even idiosyncratic things like you might have sort of family legends, like maybe your family believes that there was a certain quality in your family line, or maybe they believe there was a curse on the family long ago that you're still living out, or these various idiosyncratic things that can be passed on generation to generation, even in a familial way, these play a part in influencing our emotions when we're listening to music. Also, in a modern contemporary sense, even such things as urban legends or things that are cultural influences in the news and media and things that we're picking up in a very modern contemporary way, that also obviously is going to affect how we respond emotionally to music and to sound and to voice. So there are many, many factors at play. In terms of what can be facilitated in a magical sense, what can be facilitated in a metaphysical sense of, you know, having an intention for a desired outcome. Yes. Because I think that's what you're getting at Mm -hmm. in this in this story that you're doing the show about is that there is either a quality, certain quality about a particular song that brings about a particular outcome, or there is a maybe an intention in playing the song or something of that nature. Right. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. And I love this quote that I found from you, that no spiritual power of any force can be used by humanity. Such autonomous intelligences are far more powerful than humanity can even imagine. Human initiates may be able to awaken the divine demonic powers within themselves through theurgy and other spiritual and shamanistic practices, but to imagine that gods or demons will submissively follow the bidding of man is a conceit that grossly overestimates the human's place in the cosmic order. And that's sort of what you're, I think you're getting at here. But yeah, in the story, there is a song that's opening up a a portal to another dimension that's putting people in a trance-like state. If you can talk a little bit about that and how music can be used as a magical tool. In that sense, it's a symbiotic relationship, I would say, because it's not simply that external deities do have their own essence, their own consciousness, their own life force that's unique to them Mm -hmm. as we do ourselves. So it's an interplay. We exist so that we can perceive those energies, so that we can 
have perception of those external existences, but that does not mean that they are solely a creation of our own mind. A lot of people like to believe that gods only exist because, you know, Joe Schmo made it up, (laughs) you know, because some very creative and clever person thought to write down this particular religion or that particular religion, but that's not how religion manifests. And that's not for the reasons why religion manifests. And that's not how gods exist or demigods or any other spirit beings. That's not how they exist. They're not just creative manifestations of the human mind, although the human mind can play a part in that. Okay. But it plays a part. It's not the only factor. So in the same way that even from our own side, we exist, and simultaneously, we also don't exist if we actually break down all the components of what creates the I, of what creates the ego, of what creates our perception of a self, of what creates our idea of of a unique and solid being that actually if we break that down by its various components of what culminates to create that illusion, we don't exist in the same way that external beings don't exist on that level. However, in the relative understanding, in the relative sense of existence as we are experiencing it in this material world, in a relative sense, we exist and so do other non-visible beings. Simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So it gets very complicated, actually. sound can be used as a magical tool is ultimately and fundamentally everything originates from an intention of mind. Mm. But how we direct and throw that intention of mind depends on how skilled we are at being able to master our own mind. There are innumerable techniques and methods of magical ceremonies or processes that are written about. There's probably tens of thousands, if not more, of different kinds of books that explain supposed secrets of how to use, you know, sonic magic in, in, you know, in a directed way or something like that. But ultimately, what all of these things come down to, and I would include in that prayer, for example, and religious chanting and prayer, mantra recitation, all similar things, regardless of whether it's in the realm of Western occultism or conventional religion or, you know, like holy rollers (laughs) or unique different sects of conventional religions or indigenous spirituality that isn't even, you know, very well documented. It really doesn't matter. The core unifying 
factor, the core unifying point of how any sound or tonal quality or voice that is used for the purpose of transformation from the subjective world to the objective world, or whether it's for self-transformation or transformation in the environment around you, regardless, it all begins with intention. Okay. It all begins with intention, no matter which system, no matter which technique, no matter which part of the world, which ethnicity. The point is that the seed, the root of all magical practices has to begin with a very clear mind and a very clear intention. That sounds much easier than it actually is <laughs> to achieve. Because how does one know when they have attained a very clear mind? So that's a long process, actually. Mm -hmm. And I can assure you, there are many people of all different spiritual persuasions, all different magical persuasions, who arrogantly believe themselves to be of clear mind and a clear enough mind to cause and affect the objective world around them. but. There are many ways of testing that to know if that's a delusional thought or if there is some real merit to that understanding, some truth right. understanding. So that it's a very difficult process to begin the steps of clearing the mind enough to be able to direct and focus an intention for a directed outcome. What comes to my, my mind after hearing that is what happens when you have a clear intention and you've made, say you've made a recording, say on vinyl, mm -hmm. and then we have the issue of downloading because then suddenly people are coming to this music in a whole different form mm -hmm. from which it was created where the intention was one thing and now it's out in the world in a different form. That's an interesting situation. Well, then it mutates. And so that's sort of like, in a very simplistic way, you know the you know the game. I think it's called telephone, where you begin yeah. with with one sentence and you pass it on to the, your neighbor and the person sitting next to you. You whisper it into the ear of the person sitting next to you, and then you that person whispers it the phrase into the next person's ear, and then you pass it on and pass it on and pass it on until by the end of the line of people that you've been whispering it to, it's mutated. The original phrase isn't retained, but it has mutated into something else. So in a similar way, you know, you could maybe have an intention to release something musically on a certain medium. Mm -hmm. I mean, now we have many different kind of digital forms of conveying music, and all of these things are debatable, you know, which is... <laughs> better, which is more authentic, or which is purer, and all, or which is warmer, which is colder, all of these different sure. factors. Those are aesthetic preferences. But in terms of the magical intention, that would not mutate as much, I don't think. That's what I'm interested in, because what has happened with this song is it's been passed from one musician to another mm -hmm. throughout time. And I just, I wonder if that original magical intention has then been corrupted. Well, okay, give me an example of where the song originates in the first place. 
It goes back centuries. I, I think it originates in Europe. Okay, so let's say if it originates in Europe, if the point of the song were to be to tap into alternate dimensions or create like a uh, pathway into other dimensions or something of that nature, then whoever the indigenous person of that place and their cultural understanding and their magical understanding of that time would be passed on into the musical product. Okay. And then how that mutates is by each successive mind taking it up, reinterpreting it according to their own cultural or indigenous or environmental or or even, you know, period in time and in historically. So it will be mutated with each successive unique mind that picks it up and furthers it. That makes sense, yes. I don't know how that relates to this novel, but I'm only saying in terms of if we go with the theory that consciousness, that the consciousness of each individual, and not only the consciousness, but everything that comes with the consciousness in terms of disturbing emotions, positive aspects and negative aspects, and all of the components that go into each successive consciousness that picks up that song and takes it further, then it's going to be subtly mutated. Okay. Are we talking in any way, shape, or form about trance music? Is What's the correlation there? You know, since the beginning of time, the human mind, or or even prehistoric mind, pre you know prehuman mind, <laughs> yes. uh, whatever the most ancient primordial mind responds to sound and responds to the rhythms that induce trance-like states of mind, and then subsequently, then trance-like states of mind create an expansiveness mm. of mind, so that the mind is more receptive to the true nature of reality in many ways. Mm -hmm. So not always, and also, again, depending on each individual's mental state. Right. And depending on each individual's ability to be, you know, very balanced in their mental state, and the ability to master one's own mind. So it could also work in the opposite. So, for example, if a person has um, a very unstable mind, a lot of disturbing emotions or subjected to a lot of depression or anxiety or uh, hostility, anger issues, then the opposite could, it's not a guarantee that it's going to be so mind-expanding, that trance-inducing music will be so mind-expanding in a positive sense. It could also have negative consequences. Sure. It could also, um, you know, rev a person up to want to go out and shoot someone mm. or something. So just because music and sound and tonal qualities can be used to induce trance-like states does not guarantee that those trance-like states and the outcome of those trance-like states are unilaterally positive. Sure. That's not the case. It entirely depends on the state of mind of the individual. Okay, so we're back to motivation. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, well, this has been very helpful in getting a fuller picture of what's going on with the song Hangman's Jam in Rob's novel. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast again, Zena. It's always great to talk to you. What have you got going on now you want to tell folks about? I am working on a number of projects at the moment as we speak, uh, musical projects. And probably by the end of 2023, we will see at least four different manifestations of those. (laughs) Well, I can't wait for that. That sounds great. Well, sign up to my blog and you'll get the newsletter, which will send announcements for everything that's new and everything that's uh, newly released. (laughs) I am signed up, but everybody listening, you need to sign up too. It's very easy to remember, just xenashrek.com. Yes. (laughs) Where can folks find out more about you besides the website? Well, I have an Instagram page, which I post my photography and also little announcements of things that I'm working on. I have a YouTube channel that has some of my music and some interviews. And then there's a fan Facebook page that you can follow. But if you want the most reliable source to get news and information about what's new and what's being newly released, then definitely the website's the best place to go. And I will put links in the show notes. Thank you very much, Christy. It was wonderful talking. Thanks again, Zena. Thank you, too. Okay, till next time. (laughs) Yes, till next time. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in, Lit listeners. And thanks to Rob Herrera, whose rock horror novel Hangman's Jam provided the inspiration for this episode. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Hangman's Jam wherever you buy books. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time. Keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.